Good morning uh, to those who are here. Welcome for the second session of Becoming Israel, the return of Jacob. Uh, we are working in Genesis, starting again in chapter 32. Uh, Rabbi Silver, if you uh, are ready to take it away, we can ready to go. do that. Okay. Right. Uh, is there some way for people that can't get in through Trisha Live and Facebook to join Zoom at this point, or that's... Um, Kayla does check late registrations, so I can put a message on her Facebook that folks can come join us here and we'll let them in. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll start. That's unfortunate, but welcome those who are uh, in this uh, group, the Zoom. So we'll begin with chapter 32 in the 25th Pasuk. Vayivater Yaakov Rivado. Um, Jacob was left alone and someone, an ish, some person, wrestled or struggled with him until the dawn. So as we remember, Jacob was left alone. It's not actually clear why he's left alone because the previous verses say he brings across the rest of the family, his 11 children, it said, his two wives, his two handmaidens, and his possessions. And then they, they cross in verse number 24 and 25, so the two possibilities, one is that he helps them cross, but he never crossed himself, which seems to be the plain meaning. And the other possibility is that he in fact did cross but for whatever reason, he, he, he comes back, which is not what it sounds like, but there is a view. The Midrash makes that suggestion and it says enigmatically, why did he return? Why did he come back? And the Midrash says, he came back to get small jars or small vessels he had left behind, Pachim Katani. And last week at the end of the session, I had two suggestions about what that might mean. What it might mean that he feels that in crossing over, he has to cross over completely. Nothing is left behind. Even the possessions are important. Some possessions are very important to us. They may be small from one perspective, but from our perspective, they're not small. That's one way to understand it. And the other way to understand it is that Pachim Ketanim is actually a critique. That he went back for small vessels, that is to say, there's something about Yaakov that's still connected to where he comes from. And where he comes from in the story, of course, is the house of Lavan. It's all about leaving Lavan's house, which we, in our study of Yaakov in the house of Lavan, we noted on more than one occasion, the many parallels between Yaakov and the house of Lavan and Israel and the land of Egypt. And that the leaving of the house of Lavan is in a certain sense, parallel to Israel leaving Egypt. And Pachim Katanim would suggest that somehow there's something still there, there's still a connection, which of course is the largest story in the Chumash of Israel leaving Egypt. After all, even after we leave, physically leave Egypt, we're still in some sense, those of us that left Mitzrayim are still connected to Mitzrayim. In any event, be that as it may, whether he crossed back, whether he never went in the first place, Jacob was left, remained alone. And the 
remaining alone is in two senses. He's alone in the sense that everybody else, the family, possessions are on the other side. They all seem to cross over with no difficulty. And then the aloneness is, in addition to this, we remember that Yaakov had prayed to God for help. Hatzileni save me. And we had the remarkable uh, response of God, which is no response, it would appear. God says nothing. God does not respond to Yaakov. And we wondered, because it's very unusual, in this book, in Breshit, God always responds. So why is there no response? But at the end of the day, no response means God's silence and Yaakov's aloneness. So he's alone in a, in a very deep sense. He's alone in terms of the people around him, and he's alone in terms of the God whom he has petitioned earlier in this chapter. And we remember, of course, what the Chumash says in the beginning of Sefer Breshit. After all, this is the story in this book of Breshit. And God has said in the Gan Eden narrative in chapter two, chapter three, it's not good for the person to be alone. I'll make for this person a helpmate. It's not good for the earthling to be alone. And now we find in this verse, Jacob was left alone. And somebody, some mysterious person, is wrestling or struggle with Jacob. The Hebrew word is related, no doubt, to the word avak. The word avak in biblical Hebrew is synonymous with the word afar, uh, dust or dirt. And this person is vayei ovek, they're wrestling or struggling with Jacob. And it's a serious struggle. One might say he comes not even to injure Jacob, perhaps to kill Jacob. He's coming to destroy Jacob. Vayei ovek ishimo until dawn, adolot It's interesting, actually, if we think about it, this idea of the ish. The idea of the ish, so of course we have already noted that the ish appears later um, in this book. The ish, when Joseph is searching for his brothers, Yaakov sends Yosef to find his brothers in chapter 37, and he gets lost. He's to'eh, he gets lost. And a person, an ish, finds Joseph and says to Yosef, what do you want? What are you seeking? And Yosef says, I seek my, bro my brothers at the Chayel of Himavakesh. And the Ish says to Yosef, they've left. They're not here anymore. In Shechem, they've traveled to Dotan. And Yosef takes the advice of the Ish and he travels to Dotan. And before he gets there, the brothers see him from a distance and decide to, uh, to uh, kill him. So the ish in that case is the one that sends Joseph to his brothers. And at the end of the day, he sends Joseph to his brothers and Yosef actually ends up outside the land. Yosef ends up in exile. And when we study that story, and hopefully we'll get to it, if not in these sessions and the following sessions, we remember very well in chapter 37 that when Yaakov sends Yosef to, to, to meet up with his brothers, and he says, bring me back a word of peace. In chapter 37, so he sends Joseph on a peace mission. Joseph and the brothers are in, have a serious uh, problem. Torah says the brothers both hate Joseph and are jealous of him. Kino and Sinah, it's a 
explosive combination. Yaakov sends Yosef to find his brothers. And it says, where does it, in this verse, looking at verse number 14, and he sent him from the plains of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Yaakov had said to Joseph, are your brothers not in Shechem? Go, go and find them, go, let me send you to them. So he sends Joseph to Shechem. But the Chumash says in verse number 14, he sent him from the valley of Hebron, plain of Hebron, the valley of Hebron, and he goes to Shechem. So it's interesting, the journey that Joseph takes, he boards the train in Hebron, heading to Shechem, and he doesn't find them in Shechem. They miss it. He doesn't get them in time. The train has left or whatever. So what is the significance of traveling from Hebron to Shechem? And when we studied this in the past, I suggested the following. If you look at the Chumash, say for Brejit, so Avram enters the land in Shechem. He comes in Shechem. Then he keeps traveling between Betel and Ai in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he returns from Egypt and he goes to Hebron. First, he goes back to Betel, then he goes to Hebron. Shechem, Betel, Hebron. That's Abraham's journey. When Yaakov comes back from the house of Laban, he's going to go to Shechem at the end of chapter 33. Then he's going to be instructed by God to go to Bethel, which he does in chapter 35. At the end of chapter 35, he sees his father Yitzchak in the Hebron. So the order is the same. Jacob and Abraham, Yaakov and Abraham have the same journey. It's Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron. If we want to think about those three places, we would say Shechem is the point of entry. And Hebron represents the idea of being fully there. I mean, that's where Sarah is buried. Sarah is buried. It's acquisition of the land. That's what Hebron represents in Sefer Breshit. So Shechem is the point of entry and Hebron is possession. That's the way you travel. Now, what does it mean to travel in the opposite direction? What does it mean that he sends him from Hebron and he goes to Shechem? Obviously, what it means is you're headed out of the land. You're headed in the opposite direction. Okay, if you find your brothers in Shechem, no problem. What if you miss the stop? What's the next stop after Shechem? And the next stop after Shechem, which the Torah calls Dotan, quarrel, trouble, quarrel. The next stop is outside the land. So essentially what the man, the Ish, is sending Yosef, he sends him outside the land. And Yosef ends up outside the land. Yosef ends up in the land of Egypt. So the two ish, the ish of our chapter 32 and the ish of the Joseph story, one might say it's the same ish. I'm not interested right now which ish it is. Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? Is it some other angel? It's not our issue. But the question, of course, is, so in the case of Yaakov, he will, Yaakov will succeed in overcoming the ish. And Yaakov will be able to cross over to the other side and enter the land. He'll be able to cross Ma'avar Yabok after Vayeyove, and he enters the land. And what represents his ability to move from place A to place B successfully, that's the story of the Gid HaNosheh that we'll come to very soon. The Gid HaNosheh, Nosheh means to be moved from place to place. So that's, uh, that's what Yaakov is able to do. In the case of Yosef, it's the opposite. He can't overcome the Ish. 
and he ends up in Mitzrayim. And what represents Joseph's sojourn in Mitzrayim, in Joseph's own words, is his first child, his first son, whom he names Menashe, which means forgetfulness, but it also means to move from place to place. He's left that place behind. So Menashe represents Joseph's ability to relocate in Mitzrayim, to leave the land. And Gid Hanoshe represents the ability to leave your place and enter into the land. And what's interesting is that the two contexts are parallel because the context of both stories, after all, each one is a story within a story. The larger story here is Yaakov and Esau. So Yaakov's ability, as it were, to make peace with Esau, that's the outer story. And the inner story is Yaakov's ability to enter into the land. But in the Joseph narrative, it's the opposite. The larger story is Joseph's inability to reconcile with the brothers. And the inner story, of course, is the Ish who sends Joseph out of the land. I, I alluded to that last week. I just added a few details. And I wanted to add one more detail too. That in thinking about the two stories of the Ish, in the first case, who tries to prevent Yaakov from entering, but is overcome by Jacob. In the second story, who sends Joseph out of the land and succeeds in doing exactly that. There's actually another story. There is not an ish singular, but anoshim puru. And there, it's, a, it's the first story, which precedes these two stories, is about the ish who tries to help you enter the land. The first story is about the issue who tries to help you enter. The second story is the issue tries to block you. And the third one is the issue succeeds in sending you away. But the first story of the Ish, who tries to help you enter the land, of course, that's chapter 19. Those are the, they're the two Ish, Anoshim, plural. God sends two Anoshim to Sodom in chapter 19. And they have two purposes. One is, of course, to, to check the place out, as God says, let me check it out and see if what I'm hearing is actually true. Abraham had prayed for the people of Sodom, maybe they're 50 righteous, maybe they're 45 or 40, 30, 20, 10. At the end of the day, there aren't even that many, but there is one person there whom God decides to save on account of Abraham, and that's of course his nephew, Lot. So the strangers come to town and Lot takes them in, and they don't want to even stay at his house, but he takes them in. And then after it's clear that the people of Sodom are wicked, these Anoshim say to Lot, who is, who is here in the house? Who do you have? Sons-in-law, whatever. Daughters, sons-in-law. Remove them from this place. We plan to destroy it. We plan to destroy it. And Lot talks to the sons-in-law and they mock him. They, 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 they think he's being ridiculous. So it says that the people, the Anoshim, after Lot tarries, he delays, in verse number 16, and in verse 17 of chapter 19, So the, the, the Anashim say to Lot, run away, hurry up, run away, flee for your life, don't look back, leave this place. And Lot refuses, disobeys what they tell him to do. What they're telling him to do is to return to Abraham, to return to the land of Canaan, 
That's what they're telling him to do. But Lot can't do it for whatever reason. He's afraid to do it lest I die. He says in verse number 19, I'm not able to. Let's keep that those words in mind. I cannot. Lest, lest death attach itself to me, the evil attach itself to me and I die. Rather, let me stay nearby in a nearby city and they grant him that request. Um, and it says, Hashem uh, the Lord brought Tzohar The As the sun rose upon the earth, Lord enters Tzohar. So, um, Earlier, it says, as dawn broke. So there's dawn and there's sunrise. We know that, of course. Sunrise is mentioned here in this verse, in verse number 23. But in verse number 15, it talks about the dawn. At dawn, the angels, these angels, whom the Torah earlier called Anoshim, they urged Lot, saying, take your wife, your two daughters, the ones that are found with you, lest you be destroyed, swept away because of the city. So Lot, the Anashim, the Malachim, Anashim, are actually trying to save him. They're trying to allow him to leave Sodom, to flee from Sodom, and to re-enter the land. That's what they're trying to do. We, of course, all know uh, and certainly those that have read the uh, Haggadah that I wrote, the Buah Haggadah that we did nine years ago, eight, nine years ago already in English and Hebrew. That of course the story, and we mentioned it last week, all the parallels between Mitzrayim on one hand and the uh, story of Sodom on the other, which of course the Haggadah picks up. All the many parallels. So what Lot is actually told to do by these Anoshim is Yitziat Mitzrayim, leave Sodom and go back to the land. They're trying to help him go. They grab his hand by Yachsiku. They drag him out. But for whatever reason, Lot is unable to do it. So we have three stories actually in Sefer Breshit that speak to each other. We have Lot's leaving of Sodom with the aid of the Anoshim, whom the Torah also calls Malachim. We have our story of Jacob wrestling with this Ish, who's not just an Ish, as we'll see. And of course, we have the story of Yosef, where the Ish succeeds in sending Yosef out of the land. Now let's get back to our story over here. We picked up last week, Here too, we have Alota Shachar. And this ish wrestled or struggled with Jacob until, until the dawn, Adalot HaShachar. So who this ish is, is very unclear. It's clear that it's not simply an ish. But we'll get to that, but exactly how to understand the ish. Vayar kilo yocholo. The ish sees kilo yocholo, he cannot prevail. Lo yochol, he cannot prevail. Vayiga bekaf yurecho. Vayiga means, uh, let's see how they translate Vayiga over here. Um, here they translate, he wrenched Jacob's hip at its socket. 
Vayigad can mean to touch. But actually, it often does not mean to touch. It means to, to injure or to harm or to touch in such a way that's very harmful. The word nega, for example, plague is related presumably to the word vayiga or gat. When, when, when the Isha says to the snake, God said, don't eat it or touch it, she probably didn't mean just touching. He's touching in a way that will lend you to injuring, to damaging, or to eating, or to consuming. And when Avimelech says to his people, whoever touches this man or his wife will die, he doesn't mean just to touch. It means to touch in an inappropriate way, a harmful way, etc. So over here too, clearly, it doesn't mean he touched it because because he wrenches the uh, he wrenches it out of its hip, out of its socket. Bateka, it moves from its place in, in the struggle. So here Vayiga once again means not to touch. It means to wound, to injure, etc. Clearly. On the other hand, he can't, what do you mean, Loyo He does harm him. He, he severely hurts him. Jacob is limping. But apparently his intention was more than that. His intention was to destroy Jacob, or what might say, prevent him from crossing over. Yaakov can't cross over. This one is stopping Yaakov from crossing, going ma'var yabo. But the ish can, can, can destroy him. Wounds him, yes. And the ish says to Jacob, let me go or send me away for the dawn has come, a mysterious verse, mysterious phrase. There you see already the dawn has come. Why must he leave at dawn? Sounds like he has some, some other mission. I have to go back, I have other things to do. It's a new day, dawn is breaking. So let me go, shalcheni, let me go. And Yaakov says, I'll always send you away, permit you to leave if you bless me. What is your name? My name is Yaakov. No longer shall your name be Yaakov, but rather Israel. Israel. Because you have struggled with godly, godly beings and humans. And you have prevailed. Before it said that the Ish could not prevail over Jacob. But here it says more than that, in this struggle, despite the fact that you've been wounded, you in fact have won, you have prevailed. This is the blessing. The blessing is no longer will you be called, one might say only Jacob, because he is called Yaakov afterwards, but you will be called in addition to that, Yisrael. So the question is, and, he, and the Ish gives the reason for Yisrael from the word Sarita, from the word Sar, which is a prince, but here it means to Sarita, you have struggled with, striven with the divine beings and the humans, and you have prevailed. You have prevailed. So what's interesting here, we have to understand this, because the issue is coming, is coming, presumably, what it sounds like, he comes to destroy. He comes to block him, actually. But in the struggle, Yaakov wrestles with this mysterious being through, through the night. 
is wounded in the struggle, but, but does in fact prevail. And then this ish is forced by Yaakov to bless. He's forced to give a blessing. So we have to think about the story. Obviously, it's a story of supreme significance. And one gets that sense precisely from the, from the very deep mystery and, 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 and from the language. It's not regular prose over here. It's not poetry exactly either. Sometimes the lines between prose and poetry are not clear. It's what we would call mythic, mythic prose. It's, it's bigger. Send me away for the dawn has come. Not until you bless me. What's your name? Jacob, no longer only Jacob. Israel, you have wrestled with divine beings and humans and prevailed. There's something very big about the story over here. So we have to understand the story, what it seems to mean in its place. And then there's of course another story, which I've talked about before several times, but I wanted to add some few more things about the other story, which casts a good light on this story. You see how the story is interpreted by the Chumash itself. Um, yes, of course, it is the story of Bilam. That is very true. But I have more to say about that. But let's start with that. First of all, what does it mean? What is the, what is the, what is the deep point over here about the story? So the, the deep point, and simple, Deep point, and I think anybody who learns the Chumash with, two op with open eyes, without apologetics, it's a question everybody who ever read the Chumash asks, which is, what has Yaakov ever done in his past to uh, deserve some kind of a covenantal blessing to take his place alongside Avram and Yitzchak, which is what crossing to the other side means. It means to, as God said, the blessing of Abraham and Isaac shall be yours. Not only that, Yaakov goes beyond that. In addition to that, I'm gonna, you'll be my God. I'm also gonna build the, the bite. I'm gonna build the family, which no one else has done. I'm gonna include everybody. That's Yaakov's mission. That's Yaakov's vow. So of course the question is, what has he ever done? He, he, he cheated his father, fooled his blind father and his brother, runs away. And then he manipulates Lovin's flocks and runs away. Okay. We can justify some of it, but it doesn't make you a hero either. So what is the point? And the point is a very simple point. If Yaakov stays Yaakov, he never crosses over. This is the point of the Chumash. If he remains simply Yaakov, he doesn't get the blessing because he can't cross. Can't cross because of his history. He can't cross because maybe he's still connected to Lavan. He can't cross because of the story with Esau and, and, and his father. So in order for him to cross, he has to become something additional, something extra, something different. And that's the story of, of Yaakov uh, and uh, Yisrael. Yaakov and Yisrael, as the Ramban has point, pointed out, not just two different names, but the Ramban argues they're actually opposites. Because the word Yisrael, if you simply read the letters, Yud, Sin, or Shin, Reish, Aleph, Lamed, Yashareel, Yashar is straight. And a cove is, 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 is circular. The akev, the heel is actually circular. The baby, you can see it's round. The crooked shall become straight. The circular shall become straight. Up to this point, all his blessings are through somebody else. And here he demands a blessing directly. Here he's being very direct. You bless me directly. It's not, not, not enough that I got, took someone else's blessings. 
whether I deserve them or not. I wanted to direct. So Yaakov, which is why later in the Chumash, we have the name Yeshurun. Yeshurun is Israel. Yeshurun is Yashar, it's strength. So as Jacob, he doesn't cross over. He only crosses over if he becomes a new person, a different person. And how does he become a different person? And that's what's interesting over here. He becomes a different person, or how does he cross over to the other side? He had said to God, save me, please save me. And God was silent. And the question is how to interpret God's silence. I don't mean in general. I mean in this particular story. And in this particular story, what God seems to be saying to Yaakov, what God's silence says to Yaakov is, of course I could save you. Of course I could chase away your, your enemies. Of course I could send Esau in a different direction. That, that wouldn't make you a different person. That's to be, once again, you're saved by good fortune or whatever, or someone intervening. But you have the ability to save yourself. You have the ability to transform yourself. And that's the great significance of the story. It's Dafka that God does not respond in the sense of God bailing him out. God does respond in the sense of creating a, a, a space, an, an, an arena where Yaakov can struggle. Yaakov transforms himself. If there's any story in the Chumash, you've got to pick out one story at the center, I would say, of biblical theology, what emerges from the Chumash. This, this will be high on my list. The idea that we don't need another person to save us, that we have the ability, or, or we can be central, and let's put it that way, in our own transformation. That is something that's absolutely central. And it's a struggle. And in the struggle, one is often severely hurt, damaged, wounded, etc. It's a story over here. But at the end of the day, we are grateful to, for God who set up this opportunity. But at the end of the day, wherever you end up is, is based on your own abilities. Someone else isn't going to save you. You can save yourself if you find yourself in the right place. And that's actually what Yaakov says. Later on in the story, Yaakov says, after Yaakov was able to cross over, in verse number, was it 21? 31, 31, I can't say, 31. He, he called the place, he names the place, the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and my soul has been saved. Batinatzel nafshi is the is the reflexive of hatsileni, hatsileni. So, yeah, Yaakov says God did save me. God saved me by giving me the opportunity to be in a place where I can struggle, and I can become a different person. Not only Yaakov, but I can become, in a sense, Yaakov's opposite. I'm Jacob, yes, but I'm also Israel. Israel is born from Jacob. Israel is born from Jacob. Let me stop here. There's a lot more to say. There's a lot more here to say. So let me take comments and questions now, and then we'll continue. Aviva, what do you want to say? Yes? You're muted. Do you need help? Um, we go. I wanted to comment on why Yaakov was left alone. And I wondered if in addition to the reasons that you gave is that he needed to be alone to be in the state of 
being in which he could be receptive to this ish. Um, if he was with his wife and his family and his um, entourage, he was taking care of business and he needed solitude to be prepared. That's possible. I mean, um, the truth of the matter is he's alone even when he's with them, clearly. Correct. That's, that's, he's always alone. Actually, Yaakov's always alone. It's ironic in a certain sense that the builder of the bayit till the very end is completely alone. He's alone at the end of his life in the land of Egypt because he understands and no one else does. Maybe Joseph at the very end of his life understood it, maybe. But Yaakov's the only one who understands that going down to Mitzrayim means you, that you're in exile. Hmm. The other, no one else understands it. It's a great place. Egypt's a land of plenty. They have a very good situation. The viceroy of Egypt is their brother. They have protection, as we'd say, and they can stay near Joseph and they get fed by Yosef. And Jacob says something different. Jacob is, this is not our place. So to the very end, he is completely alone. And the builder of the house is alone. In that sense, the character reminds us very much of his uh, Moshe. Moshe builds the nation. No one was ever more alone. He, he only has one friend. He only has one close friend in the Bible, Ananju. That's his only real friend, Yisrael. He yeah. loves Yisrael. And he has to send him away. So, you know, you can be in a big what, what crowd with 100 people and feel alone. What about Wait, 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 wait. Because I had an, a second thing that um, about th when the Ish has to leave because the sun is rising. Yes. Um, and I'm thinking not of a, a biblical tradition, but um, that these divine beings, these right. other ones, only live in the night. And if and I think of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, where the fairies live at night and then they have to disappear in the day. Well, there, there are those kinds of traditions within the Jewish tradition as well. But there's also the idea that in the morning, the angels, it, all kinds of different traditions about it. But the Midrashim pick up on this, send me away, the dawn has risen. And I, the time that we are singing before the divine presence, you know, the same Shira in the morning. Mm -hmm. But the, the deeper point is, that angels in rabbinic thinking are, are, are beings that have particular missions. And the mission, this is, a, this is the time of my mission. I have a different mission, but I, or I have one, maybe only one mission, but the time is up. And the fact that it takes place in the darkness, takes place at night is, is part of the mystery, I would say. Something happened that night when actually Israel was born on that night. Mm -hmm. And the Chumash understands the great significance, obviously, of it because it marks it and it marks it in two ways. One way it marks it is that the Torah says that when Jacob, after Jacob wrestled with this being, um, the Torah says um, in verse number 32, that he was limping afterwards. So the point is, that he's limping afterwards. It's not just that that night he is, he's wounded. But means he carries that experience with him throughout his life or certainly beyond the night. You know, how many times do we dream at night or make all kinds of commitments? You wake up next morning and you know, like the mist, it disappears, all these promises and commitments. And the point over here is 
somebody he takes with him. This is an event which, which he carries with him individually. And then the last verse of the chapter, the Torah says that therefore, B'nai Yisrael, and it probably refers not to his own immediate children, but it refers to B'nai Yisrael and the Chumash, which is the people of Israel. We do not eat the Gita and Asher, the sinew of the, uh, of the, of the thigh, thigh, until this very day. In other words, we mark this event through our ritual behavior, or in this case, through our abstaining from, and that's part of the idea of, of, of mitzvah, the idea of the significance of mitzvah. One of the ideas is without question as a kind of marker. The example I like to give, which is related to this, I think, and when I focused in on the Haggadah, I wrote, uh, coming back to that Haggadah, you know, um, is, the, uh, is the story in the Haggadah about the various rabbis who were up all night. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azari, Rabbi Akiva, they were up the entire night, they were, they were telling the story of the Exodus. Until their pupils came. And they said to Rabotenu, it's time to read the morning Shema. So my interpretation, which I'll repeat, because I like it very much, is the following Shema, of course, is a mitzvah in, when you wake up. And the Shema that we have before us, the parasha of the Shema, the third parasha, talks about remembering the fact that God took us out of Egypt. And the Hashem right? We shouldn't forget it. We should remember that God took us out of Egypt. And that's a mitzvah twice a day. So every day of the year, twice a day, there's a mitzvah morning and night to remember the Exodus. And one day in the year, it's a different mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to tell the story. And wasaper is not just about remembering. Wasaper requires someone to tell the story too. They were up the entire night and it's to be fully engrossed. Part of the saper is the uh, verses of, of thanksgiving. However, was part of the Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. Part of telling the story of the various things we put on the table, the Pesach, the Matzah, the Maror. It's not just what we say, it's what we do. So it, 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 it involves the total self. So what is the relationship between the Shema on one hand and Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim on the other? So one way to understand it, there are other ways too, but one point is that the great mitzvah is once a year, the night that we left Mitzrayim. We don't want to forget that event. So we remember it. We remember it every day, twice a day. And the idea of the ritual of remembering it is to keep alive that event so that when we actually did leave Egypt on the night of Pesach, then we can relive that. We see ourselves as actually there and we tell the story to others and we study the story and we sing the story and all of that. So over here as well, the, one of the ideas of ritual is to keep those sacred moments alive. We don't have so many sacred moments. How many do we have? Very few. But we want to keep them very much alive. So that's in the Haggadah. Rabotelo, the mitzvah of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim is over. Now we have a different mitzvah called Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim. That's Kriyashma Shoshachri. Here too, in other words, this is an, the Torah says this event is of critical significance. It's marked didn't just happen at one point and disappears. It's marked in Yaakov's personal life and it's marked in the collective life of, uh, of uh, B'nai Israel. Okay, are there other comments here?
other questions, comments? Then I'll get yeah, to part yeah, two. As, as, as much as you re, you re, you've removed what, uh, what, of course, is the huge problem of who is this guy to inherit the who is who to inherit the covenant the way it is the way it is spelled out in the text is of course very problematic because because god makes a promise to him right at the beginning of his journey out of the land with no conditions i'm giving it to you well that's true in general it's true god also says you're going to go down to mitzrayim that doesn't mean there was the point that i made in the past, uh, even a couple of weeks ago, is that, um, you know, on one hand, there's a, there is a, a, a logical contradiction between God's predictions. You're going to suffer Geirut, Abdut, and Inui. It's all spelled out. That's God's plan. The Ish is God's agent to bring us down to Egypt. But the Chumash never suggests that the reason we're in Egypt is simply because God said so. The Chumash suggests that we're in Mitzrayim because the brothers can't get along because of the hatred, because of the jealousy, because of the inability of people to work together, etc. Now, you're 100% right from a logical standpoint, rather the medievals, foreknowledge and free will. But the Chumash presumes both. The Chumash works on two levels. On one hand, it's true. God says, this is what's going to happen, call it unconditional. This is what's going to take place. This is my will. That's true. But on the other hand, people still have to earn it even though it's been promised. So you might say that's a logical contradiction, to which I will say you're 100% right, it is. But that's the way the Chumash works. That's, that's what it means in Pirkei Avot, HaKot Safui, HaRashut Netuna. It's all Safui, God sees everything. God spells it out for us. How does that leave room for free will? You have to ask the philosophers that question, but the Chumash presumes that it does. It's not possible to read the Chumash that it's going to happen anyway, because what, what will be the point? The Chumash is trying to tell us how to live. So therefore, the, the Yosef and the brothers, there's misbehaviors on all sides, which ends up in exile. We have to somehow get ourselves out of exile. God will help us. And that's the whole story of our journeys. So yes, on one hand, I totally agree with you, but I don't think the Chumash operates from those, that, that the set of assumptions you begin with, I don't think are the assumptions of the text. But I, I totally agree with what you're saying. It is a, it is, it's a, it's a given. So is the exile given. Fourth generation shall return. Okay. But that doesn't mean there's no story. There is a story, a very good one too. Anybody else for a comment? Yeah, well, why, yes. does, why does the Isha, the angel, need permission to leave? And what gives Yaakov the power, the ability to delay him? Why, you know, I, it's a good question. Why and on, on Yaakov's sending him away. Right. I think I, what I assume it means is that the Ish doesn't need permission. If in fact it's God's emissary, yeah. you can do whatever the angel wishes to do. I think it's a way for the angel to say to Yaakov, what have you, what have you learned from this experience? Where do you see yourself now? Where do you, what are your aspirations? And it's very interesting because I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, but it's a very strange blessing. What is your name? I give you a new name. And in point of fact, what's, I just to pick up on what you're suggesting here, what's striking is that here you have chapter 32 with this ish, and the Torah did not use the word angel. It's interesting. The Torah, for example, in the story of Lot, 
The Torah calls those people Anashim, but it also calls them Malachim. And what's striking is that both in the story over here and in chapter 37, it doesn't use the word Malach. We, the reader, get that sense that this is not just, a Malach means a messenger, it's God's messenger, certainly. But it is striking the Chumash didn't use that language. What's interesting, if you turn for a moment to chapter 35 in verse number nine, after Yaakov goes to Bethel, and there it says that by Yerob, chapter 35, verse nine, God appeared again to Jacob when he left Padana Ram, the house of Laban, and God blessed him. And God said, your name is Jacob. No, your name is Israel. And God called Jacob Israel. And then God continues to speak. God says, I am El Shaddai. That was the language of the covenant with Abraham in chapter 17. Pray be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall descend from you. Kingship will, des will descend from you. And not only that, and the land that I gave, promised to give to Avram and Yitzchak, I give to you. So what's striking is that we have in chapter 35 in these verses, and it couldn't be more clear, we have a parallel to what we encounter in chapter 32, where the angel says, what's your name? Your name, my name is Yaakov. No, not Yaakov, but Israel. But then God spells it out in chapter 35. What does that mean? It means you can be covenantal. It means you can possess the land. It means you're a nation and a company of nations. It means you, you, you build a house, kingship, all of those blessings. It sounds like over here, this issue is maybe even saying, you will be blessed. You will become Jacob. You, you will be. But maybe it hasn't even happened yet. But you have, that, you have the opportunity. You're going to cross over to the other side and you have the, the opportunity to be, to be covenantal. Because he has to cross over to, in order to have the opportunity. So I presume that what the issue is saying to Yaakov is more about, tell me what you, you know, in other words, to, to emphasize that it's Yaakov himself, actually. Yes, God provided the setting for it. But it's Yaakov himself who, who demands the blessing. And the blessing is what you can be. And the idea that you can be something different because Yaakov has the ability to look back at his past and to, and, and, and to reinterpret his past. And we saw that, actually, in the beginning of Parashat Vayishlach, where he sends messengers to Esau, Tell Esau in Lavan Garti, I was a stranger in the house of Lavan. And it's certainly not the case that for the first many years in the house of Lavan, that the reader has any sense that Yaakov felt a stranger, quite the opposite. Oh yes, Lavan cheated him, for sure. But he doesn't see, but he stays an additional six years. He sees a good business opportunity and all that. But when he says Lavan Garti, that's different. He's left, he says, that's not, that, that's not for me. That's not, that's not my path. I have a different path. So the ability to reformulate his past, that's, that's Yaakov's strength, actually. Yaakov can become someone different. He has that ability. He has the ability over here. And later in the Chumash, we get, as we go through Breshit, we'll see it later as well. So what he's telling Yosef, you have to understand, your, you have to interpret your own past. 
we'll get to those chapters at the end of Breshi. It's very powerful. And that's, I think, that's Yaakov's greatness, actually. But, you know, you only appreciate it if you realize that he's problematic in the, in the, in the, in the beginning. There are many problematic pieces to Yaakov. Otherwise, you lose the power of the story. But the ability to, 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 to reshape oneself is what the story is about. I want to pick up with that. Additionally, is there anybody else with a comment that would think there was one I, I more? Just, yes. It's similar to the, 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 the other question. The fact that he, um, mm-hmm. he wants the blessing directly, the fact that he demands it, that he has, is, is still not direct. It's how do you interpret the, you know, I'm not going to let you go. He's still, it's not a direct blessing. It's not done without, it's not, he's still, it's almost, it's just the same to me as if he is pretending to be someone else. But he's talking to God over here. He says, I have seen God face to face and I have survived. He's turning to God and saying, I want your blessing. It's not the so same. He knows it's God at this point. Is that what you're saying? He knows the angel. No, he, I think he intimates it. He's, I, I don't know if he fully grasped it yet. Because he asked him, What is your name? So he maybe doesn't fully understand it. But right? he blesses him again. And Yaakov says, I understand that I have seen God, somehow I've seen God face to face and I have survived. The seeing God face to face is dangerous that we know from other stories of the Tanakh. So I, here, I, 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 the idea of demanding it directly and, and openly and not taking, what he's done before is not just indirect, it's also, it's also surreptitious. But it's he demanding to be somebody it's else, he dresses up as Asa, right? Yeah, but he's he, he uses Yovan's flock to make money, not his own flocks. That, that's, that's the way, technically, it's his own. But Lovin's children say he made his wealth from, from, from our father's flocks, which is true. He manipulates it. I'm not saying Lovin doesn't deserve it, but the kind of behavior has a problematic side to it. And the idea of being direct, which is what this is about. I mean, Yaakov's journey is beginning now. It's not over yet. So he has, a, and there are ups and downs in the future. It's never just straight. But I think there's a demanding a blessing directly is different than pretending to be somebody else and taking their blessing. But he's holding he's point. holding on to him like God holding the, the the analogy of God holding the mountain over Israel's head. What else could they say but okay. You know, here it's the same thing. I won't let you go. It's the same thing. Yaakov saying it. It's not God. Here, here, here Yaakov says, I, 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 in this struggle, yes, I've been wounded, but I want to understand what this is actually about. What is what am I struggling for? What, what what am I supposed to be? And you are supposed to be, um, from one perspective, the opposite of, of who you are. Yashar, direct. It's what yashar means. Be direct. You have to act, operate in a in, in a in a direct. And if you learn to do that, you can then cross over to the other side. Let me let me pick up on a different point over here, related point, obviously, about this ish. Because who is this ish actually? And it is an interesting story. He initially comes to, to, what might say, to destroy or to curse. And he ends up blessing. Of course, the story reminds us of, clearly, is the story of Bilaam. That's what Bilaam is hired by Balak to curse Israel. And Bilaam ends up actually blessing. We'll get back to that in a, in a moment. But I want to say something else about this ish, which is, that there's a way to read the ish in the following sense. 
The Torah says that ishimo The word avak means dirt. In biblical Hebrew, afar va'avak are synonyms, dust or dirt. And what it reminds us of, I think, is that this ish attacks Jacob when he is alone. And that's a quality, the idea of attacking somebody when he is alone. To alone mean, alone means when you have nobody to help you. And as we spoke, he's truly alone. And alone means to be, to be often to be, to be vulnerable. So the ish comes to attack Yaakov and Yaakov's weakness, and Yaakov's weak point. And that's actually what the uh, Nachash does. The Nachash in the beginning of this book is taking advantage of people's weakness. As God says to the Nachash, you attack at the heel, the heel being the weakest point. And as we studied, those are studied together, when we studied together at the beginning of the Breshit, we remember that the Nachash goes to the woman. So the woman was actually never commanded not, not to eat. She knows of the command, yes. She was never commanded. So the Nachash actually takes advantage of, of, of one's weakness. The claim that I made when we studied the Nachash story is takes advantage actually of, because the real enemy of the Nachash is not the human being. The primary enemy of the Nachash is actually God. And take advantage of God's weakness. You can't confront God directly. God is too powerful. But you can confront God indirectly by attacking God's weak point. And God's weak point is that which is created in God's image. It's Salmo Kidzmuto, which is the human being. So the Nachash, who's angry at God, having been deprived of the high status that he believes he deserves, attacks God at the weakest point. So when the story over here, this Ish, comes to Yaakov at night, when Yaakov is in fact alone. And one can see that as a kind of mirror. That the ish in the story is actually a mirror because Yaakov himself, that's how Yaakov functioned. Yaakov understands the weakness of his brother Esau. Esau comes back from the field, who are yev, and he's tired. He understands Esau's thinking. He lives for the moment. It's a wonderful opportunity to extract a, a, a birthright from him, both because the birthright may have inherent worth and also because the birthright sets it up to get the, to get, to get the blessing, both. So essentially, Yaakov attacks, and that's Yaakov's name, Ekev, right? He's holding on to his brother's heel in snake-like fashion. So the Yaakov that we encounter in the beginning of the story reminds us very much he has the qualities of the, uh, of the uh, Nachash. So the Ish over here, and the same thing with his father, he takes a blessing from a blind man, takes advantage of the fact that Yitzchak can't see. So the, in point of fact, the Ish who comes to confront Yaakov, one might say, is a perfect mirror of what Yaakov is. Yes, of course, that, that is Amalek. Amalek is the piece of Esau that believes that Yaakov never changed. That's the Amalek. Amalek is Esau, was the piece of Esau that thinks Yaakov didn't change. We know he changed, he becomes Yisrael. Amalek doesn't accept that. Amalek attacks you, when you were tired and weary. 
That's amoric. All kinds of, when we are weak, spiritually weak, emotionally weak, physically weak. That's when I'm, so the ish then mirrors Yaakov. So the ish in the beginning of the story mirrors the Yaakov who is snake-like, takes advantage of people's weakness, takes blessings through third parties. But then Yaakov struggles, Yaakov wrestles, Yaakov fights, puts up the, the good fight. He demands blessing, he wants to be direct. And then the ish who is reflecting who Yaakov is, then of course blesses, because Yaakov is in a place where he's worthy of blessing. So the ish is simply one can read the story that this mysterious ish, in fact, sent by God. Presumably ish is actually sent by God. As Yaakov says, I have seen God face to face. This was God's response to Hatzilani. And yes, so the Yaakov then who is direct, who struggles, wounded, et cetera, et cetera, that the blessing is the appropriate reflection of wh whom Yaakov has in fact become. That's how I would, that's how I would, I think that's, I've offered many formulations of this, but I like this formulation at this point the best as a kind of reflection. Um, okay, let us now turn our Rabbi, attention. Uh, yes. Rabbi Silva. Yes. What, what is the deeper meaning of the name Israel? Uh, Israel as a word, what does it uh, so mean? I suggest it, two, it means two things. Israel means, in the story over here, it means to struggle. It's related to the word Sar, which is a prince. I mean, Yaakov is basically named for his grandmother. He's named for his grandmother. His mother is Sarah. Grandmother is Sarah. Yaakov and Sarah. It's not just that Yaakov is named for Sarah, by the way. They're very similar. These are the two characters in the book of Breshit who actually suffer, who actually are subjected to Gerut Abdut and Inui. Yaakov, as he described it himself in chapter 31 and chapter 32, then of course, Sarah in the, in the, in the land of Mitzrayim with Paro, the Torah doesn't use, use the words Gerut and Abdut and Inui over there, but when Hashem speaks to Abraham in chapter 15, Hashem recasts that experience of Mitzrayim as Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. So those are the two people in the book of Breshit who endure the suffering. And those are the two people in the book of Breshit. It's interesting that the book of Genesis spends time talking about their, a lot of time, about their funerals, how they are mourned. There's nobody else in Breshit that the Torah spends very much time on how they are mourned. There's a couple of lines about Rachel. There's a few lines about Abraham and a little bit Yitzchak. Yaakov is a whole story and Sarah, Chai is Sarah. Because they are the ones, they are the covenantal, the main covenant in terms of the working, acting out the covenant, who actually acted out the covenant in this book. It's Sarah on one hand, and her grandson, Yisrael, on the other. So Yisrael and Sarah, it's basically the same name. That's on one level. The other level, of course, is what I mentioned several times, that it's actually Yeshurun, Yashar El. God is straight, that the God, our God is, is was very direct. The idea of integrity and honesty and truth as being central to the covenant, that's also implied as actual Yaakov becomes the embodiment of truth. It's interesting because when you read the Chumash, you don't get that sense in the beginning. But in rabbinic tradition, the quality of Emet is one associated always with, with, uh, with, uh, with Jacob. That's Yashar. 
And we'll see, by the way, I believe, that apart from what I pointed out, that in the book of Dvarim, Israel is called Yeshurun several times in Sefer Dvarim. Apart from that, there's other evidence that Yisrael should also be read as Yashar'el. Not just Yisrael with a sin, but Yashar'el with a shin. And we'll get to that very, very shortly. Okay. Are there any other comments? I'm yeah. gonna, now we're starting a new section now. I, I mean, wanted, it's not new. It's a continuation. Yes. Yeah, I just yeah. want to make a comment. I, I, as, as I go through the entire Torah, and even in, in, in Yoshua, I see God and an anti-God. God himself is struggling with a force that is trying to undo everything that he does. He like you point that he creates the world in a way, and then the Nochosh comes to oppose him. Uh, he 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 uh, appoints uh, uh, Yitzchak to be the uh, uh, the continuation of the uh, 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 of, of Avram. The, the, he just made a promise about his generations, and along comes something else that commands him. To, to kill this one. Moshe is given a, a, a mission and he's opposed by another force that tries to kill him. Uh, like you point out, Amalek comes right after the, the Ten Commandments because the, this nation is going to be a nation. Here comes the opposing force to destroy them. Uh, it, it continues over, and even with, with, with Yahushua, Yahushua is going to continue with, with the, the, the people and he's opposed by, by an angel, and, and he said, who are you? are you? Are you with us or are you against us? But you see this opposed, I see it anyway, the, the, an opposing power continuously. And even in, in Mitzrayim, the, 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 the play, God is trying to prove that he is God. That's what he's trying to do. He is fighting other forces. Right. So, 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 so the, I, I would say the following. I believe that, look, I, in, I actually agree with you. So the point is, I think if one simply looks at the Tanakh, you know, in the best possible reading, it's, 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 what, the, it's what the Kabbalah basically picked up on. It was Gershom Shalom says that evil is real. Look, it says in the Chumash, Hashem there's a war against Amalek in every generation, which suggests they're always around. And the point of fact, the fact that God says it's a war, God's war against Amalek in every generation and conscripts us to try to help fight Amalek, apart from the many other stories, does suggest to us that there are many other forces out there, um, apart from the internal human uh, you know, forces that push us in all many different directions, but that in terms of an ontology, what actually exists, I think that this Maimonidean idea that evil is, a, is not a reality is very, very far from the simple pshad of the Chumash. And what, of course, the Kabbalists picked up, evil is real, and these forces are real, and, and they're external forces and internal forces, and life is a struggle. It's hard to read Sefer Breshit, I think, in a sensible way without understanding that what this book is about from beginning to end are the, are the, is the difficulty of living, of living a, a kind of honest life and staying on, on, on a good path. And uh, I think that's clear. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's what makes it a, a, a very interesting book, better than interesting. It makes it an amazing book because there's always gonna be struggles, always gonna be problems. And the best, life is a messy business. 
And the question is how best to navigate, how best to navigate it um, and how to, you know, to keep in mind what is, you know, what is the, what is the aspiration, but at every turn, yeah, the, the Amalek story is not actually after Martin Torah, it's actually before. It actually tries to stop us from getting there. That's what Amalek's about. Mike wants to prevent you. Amalek, the, the Nachash is Amalek. Nachash doesn't want you to be in Ghanaian. Nachash wants to get you out of Ghanaian. And uh, the rest of the Torah is about the attempt to find alternative to Ghanaian. And we can actually connect to the divine in some real way. But I think that your point is not just well taken. I think it's a incredibly central point about reading the Chumash. So the way I, I, I tend to read the Chumash, I, I think, and, and the Tanakh in general, and maybe life in general, but yeah, the struggles at, at every turn. And this, this is not just the end of the story. It's a great story, but Yaakov still hasn't met his brother. And when you deal with reality, and this is the larger point I would make, you know, you can have your goals. And then what happens is, you know, it's the point I made about Avraham, for example, or David, when it comes to kingship, it's one thing to know right from wrong, okay? Then it's another thing in dealing with, 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 with actual reality, dealing with the world, in dealing with Lavan, in dealing with, uh, in dealing with Ephron, in dealing with all kinds of people, in dealing with Achashverosh. The question is, how do you, on one hand, keep your values and try to operate with integrity? Now, the other hand, you got to realize the world in which we live. To use the uh, Hasidic term, Amr Shikra. It's a world of falsehood from top to bottom. And how do you live in the world, not withdraw from it, retain your own sense of integrity, morality, and still do things in a way that at the end of the day, you can safeguard the things that are most dear to you. I think that's always the challenge. And I think what the Chumash does not shy away from that challenge. I think it's clear. And the enemies are, when I say external, I don't mean the Lavan. I think Yaakov's biggest enemy is not Lavan. Yaakov's biggest challenge is actually Yaakov. And that, I think, is what makes this story very interesting. And the idea of reducing it to black and white is something that is completely counter, as I understand it, to what these stories are about. I mean, so I think Yaakov and Esau, it's one, Yaakov's the good guy, Esau's the bad guy. It's not so simple. There are many, many different shades over here. As we, as we will as we will see, but um, yeah, so thank you for that comment. I think that's, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think it's very central to the to at least to my approach. And I think it's a, a good approach to the uh, study of the, of the of the of the Tanakh and one which the rabbinic tradition basically also endorsed. I would add, it's not that we, I believe the rabbinic tradition understood this to a T about the struggles, and they have many other things to say as well. Okay, so now I wanted to. Um, so someone else wanted to say yeah. something? Debbie, you had something to say? Yeah. yeah I was thinking, I was thinking about a comment that Fran Schifrin had made. Um, and the fact that um uh Yaakov still um has to grow, as you said, and it's possible that the deception that goes on with Yosef and with the brothers is an opportunity for him to deal with that theme of deception that he had in his life. In other words, it's another arena for him to continue to work on this, that he's a work in progress. And it's not just by chance that that's how it plays out in his life continuing forward, 
that there's more deception going on. You know, the, the Midrash points out that they use the Gedi Zim just like he had, that that's sure. played uh, for sure. that. 100%, I couldn't agree more. And the Chumash, I think that's a central, with Sefer Breshit, that's very central. And I think the critical story that we hope we get to, not in this set of sessions, but next week we're gonna start with the story of Bilam because the story of Bilam, which is extremely interesting, I have some very new things to say about Bilam. Some, I think they're interesting insights and we could talk about that. But the story actually in which the deception comes to a fore and you got to deal with it. And the one who actually changes the trajectory of Sefer Breshit is actually Tamar. That's Yehuda and Tamar. She actually calls him on it. I'm going to send you the D later on. He says, you're not, you're not sending me later on, you know. Your, your promises aren't worth very much, but you're going to do later on. So therefore, now, what will you give me now? And that, that is a very central, that is really the turning from plot standpoint, that's the turning point. When Yehuda comes to recognize you can't lead with, through, through deception. You, you, you gotta deal with honestly with the problems. And that becomes the model for the rest of the book. How can we actually, how, how can you build the house? How do you build the buy it? So it's, it can't be built with deception. Well, it won't stand that way. It's got to be built with a firm foundation. So that's for sure. These are themes that carry through, say, for Breshit and certainly beyond the part of life. But we, we, we will see later on how that how that plays out. And okay. Yehuda needs to say that publicly, while Yaakov only does this privately. Right. Yehuda has to, well, Yehuda, right. The case of Yehuda, Tamar is going to put a life on the line in that case. Sadkami many. He says, he says it twice. He's never, says it in chapter 38, says it later with Yosef, Manit Stada. He, he learns the lessons from Tamar, he's a very good pupil. But you know, we, 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 we'll get to those stories later, but, but the basic point you're making, for sure, these are themes that work their way through the entire book. Yes, Wendy, what do you want to add? Uh, I, I've occurred to me that there's another incident of some cre a character representing God uh, as the, the Midianite wife of Moshe who confronts him with the, the circumcision of his son on the way to back to Egypt. Yes. This is, a, sure. you know, this is a tremendous example of before you get there, you've got to present a Jewish child. Yes, yes, and yes, of course. And it was mentioned last week as well. That's an excellent point. Uh, that the story of and the story of Moshe was returned to after God says return to Mitzrayim, return to Mitzrayim. All the people that want to kill you are dead. The people who want to kill you are dead. And then the next couple of psukim say, he stops off uh, uh, and God meets him. And God seeks to kill him. So the people that want to kill you are dead, Moshe. There's someone else who wants to kill you who's still very much around. And that story is very striking. On the way, on, on, on the way back, yes. after, and after God says, go back, instructs him to go back. Just as God instructs Yaakov to go back, there is a um, that uh, that incident, which is you know, let's let's say that it's an excellent point. I'm not going to deal with it right now, but let's keep that in mind. Maybe in the future we can talk about. But that is a very important story. Let me let me make one last point here before we stop. And next week we'll start with Bilam. I had mentioned last week that when Yaakov prays to God, Yaakov says to God, "You told me to return." I, I know I'm not worthy, katonti, 
And you said to me, hey, TV, TV, market. Three times he uses the word Tov. But actually, when you're looking at the Chumash, it never says that God said to Yaakov, hey, TV, TV, market. That's Yaakov's interpretation of what. The, so why did the Chumash actually use that language, right? Yeah, that's, that's Yaakov's prayer, right? Um, in verse number 10, and later on, three times the word tov. And I was wondering about this because you said, you said, you said, save me, and God doesn't respond directly, but God sends the ish and sets up an opportunity, a setting in which Yaakov can, in fact, himself become a different person, transform himself, make himself worthy. And it's a setting where Yaakov is left alone. And what did the Chumash say about being Levad? Chumash said, Lo tov Lo tov. God says to Yaakov, you keep saying, tov, tov, tov. I never said that. But I would know, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put you in a setting which is Lo tov, actually, which is the setting of Levado. And in that setting, Yaakov, you remind me all my promises I made to you, which maybe I did make, maybe I didn't make. And here's my response to you. Forget my promises. Forget my promises. I'm not going to save you this time. But I will give you the opportunity to save yourself. Don't rely on someone else saving you. God's not going to save you. The Rebbe's not going to save you. Forget that stuff. To the degree to which we get any place, we're going to save ourselves. Of course, with God's grace. Because without God's help, what can we do? But at the end of the day, I'm going to put you in a situation which is low tov. And now we have, not only not a tiva, I put you in a setting of low tov. But you know what? I have more faith in you than you have in yourself, because I know you have the ability to, 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 to reconstruct yourself. And then Yaakov says at the end, yet yeah, I have seen God face to face, God, I, I prayed out Siwani, and I was saved. And thank you for giving me this opportunity, this space, to become the person that I know I should be. And we'll stop next week. We'll pick up with the story of Bilam, chapters 23 and 24, the three blessings of Bilam, and we'll see how they deeply connect to the story of Yaakov, both in chapter 32 and also in chapter 35. Looking forward Rabbi to Silver, where was that ex expression, Kisarisa? Was this now or chapter Yeah, right 19? here. Chapter oh, 32, so verse so number 30, 29. It, so it's a, hint his, verse 29. Uh -huh. it's a hint to his connection to Sarah. Um, maybe if you would say a few more things next week about that, that would be great. Oh, no, I don't know if I have more to say. If I have something to say, I'll say it. But uh, Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Uh, you can always send me emails, dsilberatrisha.org. Any questions? Happy to respond. Thank okay. you so much, Thank Rabbi you. Silver, as always, for a wonderful class and for all of you joining us here and being part of our learning community. Uh, I would like to thank those joining us on Facebook and on Drisha Live. We know that uh, there's a bit of a problem getting things connected for some reason. Uh, Facebook doesn't want to start at 10 a.m. even when we tell it to. I, uh, we will investigate, but who knows what exactly the problem is there. Um, tomorrow night, we are continuing our wonderful class with Rabbi Leosarna and Rabbi Sarah Wolkenfeld. Rabbi Silver also has a Tuesday night class on the sitter, which again, wonderful, feel free to join. And we have announced the 22nd annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture, which I'm also excited about. You can find information about that at the link in the chat. 
and also uh, our Beit Midrash for mental health professionals and clergy will be happening again this May. So you can find information and pre-register on our website. And there's always more happening at Drisha. We look forward to seeing you uh, soon. Uh, if not next week, then even sooner than that. Please be well.